But what man can obey all God's commandments? To obey the law in a legal sense, to do all the law requires, no man can. Sin has cut the lock of original righteousness where our strength lay. But in a true gospel sense, we may so obey the moral law as to find acceptance. This gospel obedience consists in a real endeavor to observe the whole moral law. Quote, I have done thy commandments. Unquote. Psalm 119, verse 166. Not, I have done all I should do, but I have done all I am able to do. And wherein my obedience comes short, I look up to the perfect righteousness and obedience of Christ, and hope for pardon through his blood. This is to obey the moral law evangelically, which, though it be not to satisfaction, yet it is to acceptation. We come now to the preface itself, which consists of three parts. First, quote, I am the Lord thy God, unquote. Second, quote, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, unquote. Third, quote, out of the house of bondage, unquote. First, I am the Lord thy God. Here we have a description of God. First, by his essential greatness, quote, I am the Lord, unquote. Second, by his relative goodness, quote, thy God, unquote. First, by his essential greatness, quote, I am the Lord, unquote. Or, as it is in the Hebrew, Jehovah. By this great name, God sets forth his majesty. Sanctius Habitum Fuit, says Buxdorf. The name of Jehovah was had in more reverence among the Jews than any other name of God. It signifies God's self-sufficiency, eternity, independence, and immutability. Malachi 3, verse 6. Use 1. If God be Jehovah, the fountain of being, who can do what he will, let us fear him. Quote, that thou mayest fear this glorious and fearful name, Jehovah. Unquote. Deuteronomy 28, verse 58. Use 2. If God be Jehovah, the supreme Lord, the blasphemous papists are condemned who speak after this manner, quote, Our Lord God, the Pope, unquote. Is it a wonder the Pope lifts his triple crown above the heads of kings and emperors when he usurps God's title, quote, showing himself that he is God, unquote. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. He seeks to make himself Lord of heaven, for he will canonize saints there. Lord of earth, for with his keys he binds and looses whom he pleases. Lord of hell, for he frees men out of purgatory. God will pull down these plumes of pride. He will consume this man of sin, quote, with the breath of his mouth and the brightness of his coming, unquote. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8. Second, God is described by his relative goodness, quote, thy God, unquote. Had he called himself Jehovah only, it might have terrified us and made us flee from him. But when he says, quote, Thy God, unquote, it allures and draws us to him. This, though a preface to the law, is pure gospel. The word Eloia, quote, Thy God, unquote, is so sweet that we can never suck all the honey out of it. Quote, I am thy God, unquote, not only by creation, but by election. This word, quote, Thy God, unquote, though it was spoken to Israel, is a charter which belongs to all the saints. For the further explanation, here are three questions. How comes God to be our God? Through Jesus Christ. Christ is a middle person in the Trinity. He is Emmanuel, quote, God with us, unquote. He brings two different parties together, makes our nature lovely to God, and God's nature lovely to us. By his death causes friendship, yea, union, and brings us within the verge of the covenant, and thus God becomes our God. What is implied by God being our God? It is comprehensive of all good things. God is our strong tower. 
our fountain of living water, our salvation. More particularly, being our God implies the sweetest relations. First, the relation of a father. Quote, I will be a father unto you, unquote. Second Corinthians 6, verse 18. A father is full of tender care for his child. Upon whom does he settle the inheritance but his child? God, being our God, will be a father to us, a, quote, father of mercies, unquote. Second Corinthians 1, verse 3. Quote, the everlasting father, unquote. Isaiah 9, verse 6. If God be our God, we have a father in heaven that never dies. Second, it imports the relation of a husband. Quote, thy maker is thine husband, unquote. Isaiah 54, verse 5. If God be our husband, he esteems us precious to him as the apple of his eye. Zechariah 2, verse 8. He imparts his secrets to us. Psalm 25, verse 14. He bestows a kingdom upon us for our dowry. Luke 12, verse 32. How may we know that by covenant union God is our God? First, by having his grace planted in us. King's children are known by their costly jewels. It is not having common gifts which shows we belong to God. Many have the gifts of God without God. But it is grace that gives us a true, genuine title to God. In particular, faith is vinculum unionis, the grace of union, by which we may spell out our interest in God. Faith does not, as the mariner, cast its anchor downwards but upwards. It trusts in the mercy and blood of God, and trusting in God engages him to be our God. Other graces make us like God. Faith makes us one with him. Second, we may know God is our God by having the earnest of his spirit in our hearts. Second Corinthians 1 verse 22. God often gives the purse to the wicked, but the spirit only to such as he intends to make his heirs. Have we had the consecration of the spirit? If we have not had the sealing work of the spirit, have we had the healing work? Quote, ye have an unction from the Holy One. Unquote. First John 2 verse 20. The spirit, where it is, stamps the impress of its own holiness upon the heart. It embroiders and bespangles the soul and makes it all glorious within. Have we had the attraction of the spirit? Quote, draw me, we will run after thee, unquote. Has the spirit, by its magnetic virtue, drawn our hearts to God? Can we say, quote, O thou whom my soul loveth, unquote? Is God our paradise of delight, our segula, our chief treasure? Are our hearts so enchained to God that no other object can enchant us or draw us away from Him? Have we had the elevation of the Spirit? Has it raised our hearts above the world? Quote, the Spirit lifted me up, unquote. Ezekiel 3, verse 14. Has the Spirit made us, superna annulare, seek the things above where Christ is? Though our flesh is on earth, is our heart in heaven? Though we live here, trade we above? Has the Spirit thus lifted us up? By this we may know that God is our God. Where God gives his spirit for an earnest, there he gives himself for a portion. Third, we may know God is our God if he has given us the hearts of children. Have we obediential hearts? Psalm 27, verse 8. Do we subscribe to God's commands when his commands cross our will? A true saint is like the flower of the sun which opens and shuts with the sun. He opens to God and shuts to sin. If we have the hearts of children, God is our Father. Fourth, we may know God is ours, and we have an interest in Him by standing up for His interest. We shall appear in His cause, and vindicate His truth, wherein His glory is so much concerned. Athanasius was the bulwark of truth. 
He stood up for it when most of the world were Arians. In former times the nobles of Polonia, when the gospel was read, laid their hands upon their swords, signifying that they were ready to defend the faith and hazard their lives for the gospel. There is no better sign of having an interest in God than standing up for his interest. Fifth, we may know God is ours and we have an interest in him by his having an interest in us. Quote, My beloved is mine and I am his, unquote. When God says to the soul, quote, Thou art mine, unquote, the soul answers, quote, Lord, I am thine. All I have is at thy service. My head shall be thine to study for thee. My tongue shall be thine to praise thee, unquote. If God be our God by way of donation, we are his by way of dedication. We live to him and are more his than we are our own. Thus we may come to know that God is our God. Use 1. Above all things, let us get this great charter confirmed that God is our God. Deity is not comfortable without propriety. Let us labor to get sound evidences that God is our God. We cannot call health, liberty, estate, ours. But let us be able to call God ours and say as the church, quote, God, even our God, shall bless us, unquote. Psalm 67, verse 6. Let every soul labor to pronounce this shibboleth, quote, my God, unquote. That we may endeavor to have God for our God, consider the misery of such as have not God for their God. And how sad a condition are they when the hour of distress comes. This was Saul's case when he said, quote, I am sore distressed, for the Philistines make war against me, and God has departed from me, unquote. 1 Samuel 28, verse 15. A wicked man in time of trouble is like a vessel tossed on the sea without an anchor, which strikes on rocks or sands. A sinner who has not God to be his God may make a shift while health and estate last, but when these crutches on which he leaned are broken, his heart must sink. It is with him as it was with the old world when the flood came. The waters at first came to the valleys, but then the people would get to the hills and mountains. But when the waters came to the mountains, then there might be some trees on the high hills, and they would climb up to them. I but the waters rose above the tops of the trees, and then their hearts failed them, and all hopes of being saved were gone. So it is with a man that has not God to be his God. If one comfort be taken away, he has another. If he lose a child, he has an estate. But when the waters rise higher, death comes and takes away all, and he has nothing to help himself with, no God to go to. He must needs die in despair. How great a privilege it is to have God for our God. Quote, happy is that people whose God is the Lord. Unquote. Psalm 144, verse 15. Beatitudo hominis est Deus. Man's happiness is God himself. Augustine. That you may see the privilege of this charter. First, if God be our God, then though we may feel the stroke of evil, yet not the sting. He must needs be happy who is in such a condition that nothing can hurt him. If he loses his name, it is written in the book of life. If he loses liberty, his conscience is free. If he loses his state, he is possessed of the pearl of price. If he meets with storms, he knows where to put in for harbor. God is his God, and heaven is his heaven. Second, if God be our God, our soul is safe. The soul is the jewel. It is a blossom of eternity. Quote, I was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body, unquote. In the Chaldee, it is, quote, in the midst of my sheath, unquote. Daniel 7, verse 15. The body is but the sheath. The soul is the princely part of man, which sways the scepter of reason. 
It is a celestial spark, as Damascene calls it. If God be our God, the soul is safe, as in a garrison. Death can do no more hurt to a virtuous heaven-born soul than David did to Saul when he cut off the skirt of his garment. The soul was safe, being hid in the promises, hid in the wounds of Christ, hid in God's decree. The soul was the pearl, and heaven is the cabinet where God will lock it up safe. Third, if God be our God, then all that is in God is ours. The Lord says to a saint in covenant as the king of Israel to the king of Syria, quote, I am thine, and all that I have, unquote. 1 Kings 20, verse 4. So saith God, quote, I am thine, unquote. How happy is he who not only inherits the gift of God, but inherits God himself. All that I have shall be thine. My wisdom shall be thine to teach thee. My power shall be thine to support thee. My mercy shall be thine to save thee. God is an infinite ocean of blessedness, and there is enough in him to fill us. As if a thousand vessels were thrown into the sea, there is enough in the sea to fill them. Fourth, if God be our God, he will entirely love us. Property is the ground of love. God may give men kingdoms and not love them, but he cannot be our God and not love us. He calls his covenanted saints, Jedaduth Nafshi, quote, the dearly beloved of my soul, unquote, Jeremiah 12, verse 7. He rejoiceth over them with joy and rest in his love, Zephaniah 3, verse 17. They are his refined silver, Zechariah 13, verse 9. His jewels, Malachi 3, verse 17. His royal diadem, Isaiah 62, verse 3. He gives them the cream and flour of his love. He not only opens his hand and fills them, but opens his heart and fills them. Psalm 145, verse 16. Fifth, if God be our God, he will do more for us than all the world besides can. What is that? First, he will give us peace in trouble. When there is a storm without, he will make music within. The world can create trouble and peace, but God can create peace in trouble. He will send the Comforter, who, as a dove, brings an olive branch of peace in his mouth. John 14, verse 16. Second, God will give us a crown of immortality. The world can give a crown of gold, but that crown has thorns in it and death in it. But God will give you a crown of glory that fadeth not away. 1 Peter 5, verse 4. The garland made of the flowers of paradise never withers. Sixth, if God be our God, he will bear with many infirmities. He may respite sinners a while, but long forbearance is no acquittance. He will throw them to hell for their sins. But if he be our God, he will not for every failing destroy us. He bears with his spouse as with the weaker vessel. He may chastise. Psalm 89, verse 32. He may use the rod and the pruning knife, but not the bloody axe. Quote, he hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob. Unquote. Numbers 23, verse 21. He will not see sin in his people so as to destroy them, but their sins so as to pity them. He sees them as a physician, a disease in his patient, to heal them. Quote, I have seen his ways and will heal him. Unquote. Isaiah 57, verse 18. Every failing does not break the marriage bond asunder. The disciples had great failings. They all forsook Christ and fled. But this did not break off their interest in God. Therefore, says Christ at his ascension, quote, Tell my disciples I go to my God and to their God. Unquote. Seventh, if God be once our God, he is so forever. Quote, this God is our God forever and ever. Unquote. Psalm 48, verse 14. Whatever worldly comforts we have, they are but for a season, and we must part with all. 
Hebrews 11 verse 25. As Paul's friends accompanied him to the ship and there left him, Acts 20 verse 38, so all our earthly comforts will but go with us to the grave and there leave us. You cannot say you have health and shall have it forever. You have a child and shall have it forever. But if God be your God, you shall have him forever. Quote, this God is our God forever and ever, unquote. If God be our God, he will be a God to us as long as he is a God. Quote, you have taken away my gods, unquote, said Micah. Judges 18, verse 24. But it cannot be said to a believer that his God is taken away. He may lose all things else, but cannot lose his God. God is ours from everlasting in election and to everlasting in glory. 8. If God be our God, we shall enjoy all our godly relations with him in heaven. The great felicity on earth is to enjoy relations. A father sees his own picture in his child, and a wife sees herself in her husband. We plant the flower of love among our relations, and the loss of them is like the pulling off a limb from the body. But if God be ours with the enjoyment of God, we shall enjoy all our pious relations in glory. The gracious child shall see his godly father. The virtuous wife shall see her religious husband in Christ's arms. And then there will be a dearer loved relations than there ever was before, though in a far different manner. Then relations shall meet and never part. Quote, and so shall we be ever with the Lord. Unquote. Use 2. To such as can realize this covenant union, we have several exhortations. First, if God be our God, let us improve our interest in Him. Let us cast all our burdens upon Him. The burden of our fears, our wants, and our sins. Quote, Cast thy burden upon the Lord. Unquote. Psalm 55, verse 22. Wicked men who are a burden to God have no right to cast their burden upon Him. But such as have God for their God are called upon to cast their burden on Him. Where should the child ease all its cares but in the bosom of its parent? Quote, Let all thy wants lie upon me. Unquote. Judges 19, verse 20. So God seems to say to his children, quote, Let all your wants lie upon me. Unquote. Christian, what troubles thee? Thou hast a God to pardon thy sins and to supply thy wants. Therefore, roll your burden on him. Quote, Casting all your care upon him. Unquote. 1 Peter 5, verse 7. Why are Christians so disquieted in their minds? They are taking care when they should be casting care. Second, if God be our God, let us learn to be contented, though we have the less of other things. Contentment is a rare jewel. It is the cure of care. If we have God to be our God, well, may we be contented. Quote, I know whom I have believed, unquote. 2 Timothy 1, verse 12. There was Paul's interest in God. Quote, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. Unquote. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10. Here was his content, that such who have covenant union with God may be filled with the contentment of spirit. Consider what a rich blessing God is to the soul. He is bonum sufficiens, a sufficient good. He who has God has enough. If a man be thirsty, bring him to a spring, and he is satisfied. In God there is enough to fill the heaven-born soul. He gives, quote, grace and glory, unquote. Psalm 84, verse 11. There is in God not only a sufficiency, but a redundancy. He is not only full as a vessel, but as a spring. Other things can no more fill the soul than a mariner's breath can fill the sails of a ship. But in God there is a carnucopia, an infinite fullness. He has enough to fill the angels, therefore enough to fill us. 
the heart is a triangle which only the Trinity can fill. God is bonum sanctificans, a sanctifying good. He sanctifies all our comforts and turns them into blessings. Health is blessed. Estate is blessed. He gives with the venison a blessing. Quote, I will abundantly bless her provision. Unquote. Psalm 132, verse 15. He gives us the life we have. Tanquam arhabo, as an earnest of more. He gives the little meal in the barrel as an earnest of the royal feast in paradise. He sanctifies all our crosses. They shall not be destructive punishments, but medicines. They shall corrode and eat out the venom of sin. They shall polish and refine our grace. The more the diamond is cut, the more it sparkles. When God stretches the strings of his vial, it is to make the music better. God is bonum selectum, a choice good. All things, subsole, are but bona scabelli, as Augustine says, the blessings of the footstool. But to have God himself to be ours is the blessing of the throne. Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines, but he settled the inheritance upon Isaac. Quote, Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. Unquote. Genesis 25, verse 5. God may send away the men of the world with gifts, a little gold and silver. But in giving us himself, he gives us the very essence, his grace, his love, his kingdom. Here is the crowning blessing. God is bonum sumum, the chief good. In the chief good there must be delectability. It must have something that is delicious and sweet. And where can we suck those pure essential comforts which ravish us with delight but in God? In Deo quadam dulcetine, delectatur anima, imo rapitur. In God's character there is a certain sweetness which fascinates or rather enraptures the soul. Quote, At thy right hand there are pleasures. Unquote. Psalm 16, verse 11. In the chief good there must be transcendency. It must have a surpassing excellence. Thus God is infinitely better than all other things. It is below the deity to compare other things with it. Who would weigh feather against a mountain of gold? God is phones et origo the spring of all entities, and the cause is more noble than the effect. It is God that bespangles the creation, that puts light into the sun, that fills the veins of the earth with silver. Creatures do but maintain life. God gives life. He infinitely outshines all sublunary glory. He is better than the soul, than angels, and than heaven. In the chief good there must be not only fullness, but variety. Where variety is wanting, we are apt to nauseate. To feed only on honey would breed loathing. But in God is all variety of fullness. Colossians 1, verse 19. He is a universal good, commensurate to all our wants. He is bonum in quo omnia bona, the good in which is every good, a son, a portion, a horn of salvation. He is called the, quote, God of all comfort, unquote. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. There is a complication of all beauties and delights in him. Health is not the comfort of beauty, nor beauty of riches, nor riches of wisdom. But God is the God of all comfort. In the chief good there must be eternity. God is a treasure that can neither be drawn low, nor drawn dry. Though the angels are continually spending what is his, he can never be spent. He abides forever. Eternity is a flower of his crown. Now, if God be our God, there is enough to let full contentment into our souls. What need we of torchlight if we have the sun? What if God deny the flower if he has given us the jewel? How should a Christian's heart rest on this rock? If we say God is our God and we are not content, 
we have cause to question our interest in him. Third, if we can clear up this covenant union that God is our God, let it cheer and revive us in all conditions. To be content with God is not enough, but to be cheerful. What greater cordial can you have than union with deity? When Jesus Christ was ready to ascend, he could not leave a richer consolation with his disciples than this, quote, I ascend to my God and to your God, unquote. John 20, verse 17. Who should rejoice if not they who have an infinite, all-sufficient, eternal God to be their portion, who are as rich as heaven can make them? What, though I want health, I have God who is the health of my countenance and my God. Psalm 42, verse 11. What, though I am low in the world, if I have not the earth, I have him that made it. The philosopher comforted himself by saying, quote, Though I have no music or vine trees, yet here are the household gods with me. Unquote. So, though we have not the vine or fig tree, yet we have God with us. I cannot be poor, says Bernard, as long as God is rich, for his riches are mine. Oh, let the saints rejoice in this covenant union. To say God is ours is more than to say heaven is ours, for heaven would not be heaven without him. All the stars cannot make day without the sun. All the angels, those morning stars, cannot make heaven without Christ, the Son of Righteousness. And as to have God for our God is matter of rejoicing in life, so especially it will be at death. Let a Christian think thus, I am going to my God. A child is glad when he is going home to his father. It was Christ's comfort when he was leaving the world. Quote, I ascend to my God, unquote. John 20, verse 17. And this is a believer's deathbed cordial. Quote, I am going to my God. I shall change my place, but not to my kindred. I go to my God and my Father. Unquote. Fourth, if God be our God, let us break forth into praise. Quote, Thou art my God, and I will praise thee. Unquote. Psalm 118, verse 28. O oh, infinite, astonishing mercy, that God should take dust and ashes into so near a bond of love as to be our God. As Micah said, quote, What have I more? Unquote. Judges 18, verse 24. So, what has God more? What richer jewel has he to bestow upon us than himself? What has he more, that God should put off most of the world with riches and honor, that he should pass over himself to us by a deed of gift, to be our God, and by virtue of this settle a kingdom upon us? Oh, let us praise him with the best instrument, the heart, and let this instrument be screwed up to the highest pitch. Let us praise him with our whole heart. See how David rises by degrees. Quote, be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, and shout for joy. Unquote. Psalm 32, verse 11. Be glad, there is thankfulness. Rejoice, there is cheerfulness. Shout, there is triumph. Praise is called incense, because it is a sweet sacrifice. Let the saints be choristers in God's praises. The deepest springs yield the sweetest water. The more deeply sensible we are of God's covenant love to us, the sweeter praises we should yield. We should begin here to eternize God's name and do that work on earth which we shall always be doing in heaven. Quote, While I live, will I praise the Lord. Unquote. Psalm 146, verse 2. Fifth. Let us carry ourselves as those who have God to be our God, that is, walk so that others may see there is something of God in us. Live holily. What have we to do with sin, which, if it does not break, will weaken our interest? Quote, what have I to do any more with idols? Unquote. 
Hosea 14, verse 8. So would a Christian say, quote, God is my God. What have I to do any more with sin, with lust, pride, malice? Bid me commit sin. As well bid me drink poison. Shall I forfeit my interest in God? Let me rather die than willingly offend him who is the crown of my joy, the God of my salvation, unquote. Second, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt? Egypt and the house of bondage are the same, only they are represented to us under different expressions. The first expression is, quote, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, unquote. Why does the Lord mention the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt? First, because of the strangeness of the deliverance. God delivered his people Israel by strange signs and wonders, by sending plague after plague upon Pharaoh, blasting the fruits of the earth, and killing all the firstborn in Egypt. Exodus 12, verse 29. When Israel marched out of Egypt, God made the waters of the sea depart and become a wall to his people while they went on dry ground. And he made the same sea a causeway to Israel and a grave to Pharaoh and his chariots. Well might the Lord make mention of this strange deliverance. He wrought miracle upon miracle for the deliverance of that people. Second, God mentions Israel's deliverance out of Egypt because of the greatness of the deliverance. He delivered Israel from the pollutions of Egypt. Egypt was a bad air to live in. It was infected with idolatry. The Egyptians were gross idolaters. They were guilty of that which the Apostle speaks of in Romans 1, verse 23. Quote, they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Unquote. The Egyptians, instead of the true God, worshipped corruptible man. They deified their king Apis, forbidding all, under pain of death, to say that he was a man. They worshipped birds as the hawk. They worshipped beasts as the ox. They made the image of a beast to be their god. They worshipped creeping things as the crocodile and the Indian mouse. God mentions it, therefore, as a signal favor to Israel that he brought them out of such an idolatrous country. Quote, I brought thee out of the land of Egypt, unquote. The thing I would note is that it is no small blessing to be delivered from places of idolatry. God speaks of it no less than ten times in the Old Testament. Quote, I brought you out of the land of Egypt, unquote, an idolatrous place. Had there been no iron furnace in Egypt, yet so many altars being there and false gods, it was a great privilege to Israel to be delivered out of Egypt. Joshua reckons it among the chief and most memorable mercies of God to Abraham that he brought him out of Ur of the Chaldees, where Abraham's ancestors served strange gods. Joshua 24, verses 2 and 3. It is well for the plant that it is set in a bad soil to be transplanted to a better, where it may grow and flourish. So it is a mercy when any who are planted among idolaters are removed and transplanted into Zion, where the silver drops of God's word make them grow in holiness. Wherein does it appear to be so great a blessing to be delivered from places of idolatry? First, it is a great mercy, because our nature is prone to idolatry. Israel began to be defiled with the idols of Egypt. Ezekiel 22, verse 3. Dry wood is not more prone to take fire than our nature is to idolatry. The Jews made cakes to the queen of heaven, that is, to the moon. Jeremiah 7, verse 18. Why is it that we are prone to idolatry? Because we are led much by visible objects and love to have our senses pleased. Men naturally fancy a God that they may see, though it be such a God that cannot see them, yet they would see it. The true God is invisible, which makes the idolater worship something that he can see. 
Second, it is a mercy to be delivered from idolatrous places because of the greatness of the sin of idolatry, which is giving that glory to an image which is due to God. All divine worship God appropriates to himself. It is a flower of his crown. The fat of the sacrifice is claimed by him. Leviticus 3, verse 3. Divine worship is the fat of the sacrifice which he reserves for himself. The idolater devotes this worship to an idol which the Lord will by no means endure. Quote, my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Unquote. Isaiah 43, verse 8. Idolatry is spiritual adultery. Quote, With their idols they have committed adultery. Unquote. Ezekiel 23, verse 37. To worship any other than God is to break wedlock and makes the Lord disclaim his interest in a people. Quote, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife. Unquote. Hosea 2, verse 2. Quote, thy people have corrupted themselves. Unquote. No more my people, but thy people. Exodus 32, verse 7. God calls idolatry blasphemy. Quote, In this your fathers have blasphemed me. Unquote. Idolatry is devil worship. Ezekiel 20, verses 27 and 31. Quote, they sacrificed unto devils, not to God, to new gods. Unquote. Deuteronomy 32, verse 17. These new gods were old devils. Quote, and they shall no more offer their sacrifices unto devils. Unquote. Leviticus 17, verse 7. The Hebrew word, la sarim, is the hairy ones, because the devils were hairy and appeared in the forms of satyrs and goats. How dreadful a sin is idolatry, and what a signal mercy is it to be snatched out of an idolatrous place, as Lot was snatched by the angels out of Sodom. Third, it is a mercy to be delivered out of idolatrous places because idolatry is such a silly and irrational religion. I may say, as Jeremiah 8, verse 9, quote, What wisdom is in them? Unquote. Is it not folly to refuse the best and choose the worst? The trees in the field of Jotham's parable despise the vine tree which cheers both God and man, and the olive which is full of fatness, and the fig tree which is full of sweetness, and chose the bramble to reign over them which was a foolish choice. Judges 9. So it is for us to refuse the living God who has power to save us and to make choice of an idol that has eyes and sees not, feet but walks not. Psalm 115 verses 6 and 7. What a prodigy of madness is this. Therefore to be delivered from committing such folly is a mercy. Fourth. It is a mercy to be delivered from idolatrous places because of the sad judgments inflicted upon idolaters. This is a sin which enrages God and makes the fury come up in his face. Ezekiel 38, verse 18. Search through the whole book of God and you will find no sin he has followed with more plagues than idolatry. Quote, Their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. Unquote. Psalm 16, verse 4. Quote, they moved him to jealousy with their graven images. Unquote. Psalm 78, verse 58. Quote, when God heard this, he was wroth and greatly abhorred Israel, so that he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, unquote, verses 59 and 60. Shiloh was a city belonging to the tribe of Ephraim, where God set his name, Jeremiah 7, verse 12. But for their idolatry, God forsook the place, gave his people up to the sword, caused his priests to be slain, and his ark to be carried away captive, never more to be returned. How severe was God against Israel for worshiping the golden calf, Exodus 32, verse 27. The Jews say that in every misery that befalls them, there is uncia adore betuli, quote, 
an ounce of the golden calf in it, unquote. Quote, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues, unquote. Revelation 18, verse 4. Idolatry lived in cuts men off from heaven, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. So then, it is no small mercy to be delivered out of idolatrous places. Use 1. See the goodness of God to our nation in bringing us out of mystic Egypt, delivering us from popery, which is Romish idolatry, and causing the light of his truth to break forth gloriously among us. In former times, and more lately in the Marian days, England was overspread with idolatry. It worshipped God after a false manner, and it is idolatry not only to worship a false god, but the true God in a false manner. Such was our case formerly. We had purgatory, indulgences, the idolatrous mass, the scriptures locked up in an unknown tongue, invocation of saints and angels, and image worship. Images are teachers of lies. Habakkuk 2, verse 18. Wherein do they teach lies? They represent God who cannot be seen in a bodily shape. Quote, ye saw no similitude, only ye heard a voice. Unquote. Deuteronomy 4, verse 12. Quote, invisible est. Pingi no potest. Ambrose, God cannot be pictured by any finger, not the soul even being a spirit, much less God. Quote, to him then will ye liken God. Unquote. Isaiah 40, verse 18. The papists say they worship God by the image, which is a great absurdity, for if it be absurd to fall down to the picture of a king when the king himself is present, much more to bow down to the image of God when God himself is present. Jeremiah 23, verse 24. What is the popish religion but a bundle of ridiculous ceremonies? Their wax, flowers, pyxes, agnus dei, cream and oil, beads, crucifixes. What are these but Satan's policy to dress up a carnal worship fitted to carnal minds? Oh, what cause have we to bless God for delivering us from popery? It was a mercy to be delivered from the Spanish invasion and the powder treason but it is a far greater to be delivered from the popish religion which would have made God give us a bill of divorce. Use 2. If it be a great blessing to be delivered from the Egypt of popish idolatry, it shows the sin and folly of those who, being brought out of Egypt, are willing to return to it again. The Apostle says, quote, Flee from idolatry, unquote, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14. But these rather flee to idolatry and are herein like the people of Israel who, notwithstanding all the idolatry and tyranny of Egypt, long to go back to Egypt. Quote, let us make a captain, and let us return into Egypt. Unquote. Numbers 14, verse 4. But how shall they go back into Egypt? How shall they have food in the wilderness? Will God rain down manna any more upon such rebels? How will they get over the Red Sea? Will God divide the water again by miracle for such as leave his service and go into idolatrous Egypt? Yet they say, quote, let us make a captain, unquote. And are there not such spirits among us who say, quote, let us make a captain and go back to the Romish Egypt again, unquote. If we do, what shall we get by it? I am afraid the leeks and onions of Egypt will make us sick. Do we ever suppose that if we drink in the cup of fornication, we shall drink in the cup of salvation? Oh, that should any so forfeit their reason as to enslave themselves to the sea of Rome, that they should be willing to hold a candle to a mass priest and bow down to a strange god. Let us not say we will make a captain, but rather say as Ephraim, quote, What have I to do any more with idols? Unquote. Hosea 14, verse 8. Use 3. If it be a mercy to be brought out of Egypt, 
it is not desirable or safe to plant oneself in an idolatrous place where it may be a capital crime to be seen with a Bible in our hands. Some, for secular gain, thrust themselves among idolaters and think there is no danger to live where Satan's seat is. They pray God would not lead them into temptation, but lead themselves. They are in great danger of being polluted. It is hard to be as the fish, which keeps fresh in salt waters. A man cannot dwell among blackamoors, but he will be discolored. You will sooner be corrupted by idolaters than they will be converted by you. Joseph got no good by living in an idolatrous court. He did not teach Pharaoh to pray, but Pharaoh taught him to swear. They, quote, were mingled among the heathen and served their idols, unquote. Psalm 106, verses 35 and 36. I fear it has been the undoing of many that they have seated themselves among idolaters for advancing their trade and at last have not only traded with them in their commodities but in their religion. Use 4. It is a mercy to be brought out of the land of Egypt, a defiled place, and where sin reigns. It reproaches such parents as show little love for the souls of their children, whether it be in putting them out to service or matching them. In putting them out to service, their care is chiefly for their bodies, that they may be provided for, and they care not what becomes of their souls. Their souls are in Egypt, in houses where there is drinking, swearing, Sabbath-breaking, and where God's name is every day dishonored. In matching their children, they look only at money. Quote, Be ye not unequally yoked, unquote. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. If their children be equally yoked for a state, they care not whether they be unequally yoked for religion. That such parents think how precious the soul of their child is, that it is immortal and capable of communion with God and angels. Will you let a soul be lost by placing it in a bad family? If you had a horse you loved, you would not put him in a stable with other horses that were sick and diseased. And do you not love your child better than your horse? God has entrusted you with the souls of your children. You have the charge of souls. God says, as 1 Kings 20, verse 39, quote, Keep this man. If he be missing, then shall thy life be for his life, unquote. So says God, if the soul of thy child miscarry by thy negligence, his blood will I require at thy hand. Think of this, all ye parents. Take heed of placing your children in Egypt in a wicked family. Do not put them in the devil's mouth. Seek for them a sober religious family such as Joshua's. Quote, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Unquote. Joshua 24, verse 15. Such a family as Cranmer's, which was Palestra Pietatis, a nursery of piety, a Bethel, of which it may be said, quote, the church which is in his house, unquote. Colossians 4, verse 15. Use 5. Let us pray that God would keep our English nation from the defilements of Egypt, that it may not be again overspread with superstition and idolatry. O oh, sad religion, not only to have our estates, our bodies enslaved, but our consciences. Pray that the true Protestant religion may still flourish among us, that the sun of the gospel may still shine in our horizon. The gospel lifts a people up to heaven. It is columna e corona regni, the crown and glory of the kingdom. If this be removed, Ichabod, the glory is departed. The top of the beech tree being cut off, the whole body of the tree withers apace. So the gospel is the top of all our blessings. If this top be cut, the whole body politic will soon wither. O oh, pray that the Lord will continue the visible tokens of his presence among us, his ordinances, that England may be called Jehovah Shammah. Quote, the Lord is there, unquote. 
Ezekiel 48, verse 35. Pray that righteousness and peace may kiss each other, that so glory may dwell in our land. Third, out of the house of bondage. Egypt and the house of bondage are the same, only they are expressed under a different notion. By Egypt is meant a place of idolatry and superstition. By the house of bondage is meant a place of affliction. Israel, while in Egypt, were under great tyranny. They had cruel taskmasters set over them, who put them to hard labor, and set them to make bricks, yet allowed them no straw. Therefore Egypt is called, in Deuteronomy 4, verse 20, the iron furnace, and here the house of bondage. From this expression, quote, I brought thee out of the house of bondage, unquote, two things are to be noted. God's children may sometimes be under sore afflictions, quote, in the house of bondage, unquote. But God will in due time bring them out of their afflicted state. Quote, I brought thee out of the house of bondage, unquote. God's children may sometimes be under sore afflictions, in domo servitutis, in the house of bondage. God's people have no writ of ease granted them, no charter of exemption from trouble in this life. While the wicked are kept in sugar, the godly are often kept in brine. And indeed, how could God's power be seen in bringing them out of trouble, if he did not sometimes bring them into it? Or how should God wipe away the tears from their eyes in heaven, if on earth they shed none? Doubtless God sees there is need that his children should be sometimes in the house of bondage. Quote, if need be, ye are in heaviness. Unquote. 1 Peter 1, verse 6. The body sometimes needs a bitter portion more than a sweet one. Why does God let his people be in the house of bondage or in an afflicted state? He does it first for probation or trial. Quote, Who led thee through that terrible wilderness, that he might humble thee and prove thee? Unquote. Deuteronomy 8, verses 15 and 16. Affliction is the touchstone of sincerity. Quote, Thou, O God, hast proved us. Thou hast tried us as silver. Thou laidst affliction upon our loins. Unquote. Psalm 66, verses 10 and 11. Hypocrites may embrace the true religion in prosperity and court this queen while she has a jewel hung at her ear. But he is a good Christian who will keep close to God in a time of suffering. Quote, All this has come upon us, yet have we not forgotten thee? Unquote. Psalm 44, verse 17. To love God in heaven is no wonder, but to love him when he chastises us discovers sincerity. Second, for purgation, to purge our corruption. Ardet palia purgatur arum. Quote, and this is all the fruit to take away his sin. Unquote. Isaiah 28, verse 9. The eye, though a tender part, yet when sore we put sharp powders and waters into it to eat out the pearl. So, though the people of God are dear to him, yet when corruption begins to grow in them, he will apply the sharp powder of affliction to eat out the pearl in the eye. Affliction is God's flail to thresh off our husks. It is a means God uses to purge our sloth, luxury, pride, and love of the world. God's furnace is in Zion. Isaiah 31, verse 5. This is not to consume, but to refine. What if we have more affliction, if by this means we have less sin? Third, for augmentation, to increase the graces of the Spirit. Grace thrives most in the iron furnace. Sharp frosts nourish the corn. So sharp afflictions nourish grace. Grace in the saints is often as fire hid in the embers. Affliction is the bellows to blow it up into a flame. The Lord makes the house of bondage a friend to grace. Then faith and patience act their part.
The darkness of the night cannot hinder the brightness of a star. So the more the diamond is cut, the more it sparkles. And the more God afflicts us, the more our graces cast a sparkling luster. Fourth, for preparation, to fit and prepare the saints for glory. Second Corinthians 4, verse 17. The stones which are cut out for a building are first hewn and squared. The godly are called, quote, living stones, unquote. First Peter 2, verse 5. God first hews and polishes them by affliction, that they may be fit for the heavenly building. The house of bondage prepares for the house not made with hands. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1. The vessels of mercy are seasoned with affliction, and then the wine of glory is poured in. How do the afflictions of the godly differ from the afflictions of the wicked? First, they are but castigations, but those on the wicked are punishments. The one come from a father, the other from a judge. Second, afflictions on the godly are fruits of covenant mercy. 2 Samuel 7, verse 14. Afflictions on the wicked are effects of God's wrath. Quote, he hath much wrath with his sickness. Unquote. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 17. Afflictions on the wicked are the pledge and earnest of hell. They are like the pinioning of a malefactor which presages his execution. Third, afflictions on the godly make them better, but afflictions on the wicked make them worse. The godly pray more. Psalm 130, verse 1. The wicked blaspheme more. Quote, Men were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God. Unquote. Revelation 16, verse 9. Afflictions on the wicked make them more impenitent. Every plague upon Egypt increased the plague of hardness in Pharaoh's heart. To what a prodigy of wickedness do some persons come after great sickness? Affliction on the godly is like bruising spices, which are most sweet and fragrant. Affliction on the wicked is like pounding weeds with a pestle, which makes them more unsavory. Use 1. First, we are not to wonder to see Israel in the house of bondage. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. The holiness of the saints will not excuse them from sufferings. Christ was the Holy One of God, yet He was in the iron furnace. His spouse is a lily among thorns. Though His sheep have the earmark of election upon them, yet they may have their wool fleeced off. The godly have some good in them, therefore the devil afflicts them, and some evil in them, therefore God afflicts them. While there are two seeds in the world, expect to be under the black rod. The Gospel tells us of reigning, but first of suffering. 2 Timothy 2, verse 12. Second, Affliction is not always the sign of God's anger. Israel, the apple of God's eye, a peculiar treasure to him above all people, were in the house of bondage. Exodus 19, verse 5. We are apt to judge and censure those who are in an afflicted state. When the barbarians saw the viper on Paul's hand, they said, quote, No doubt this man is a murderer. Unquote. Acts 28, verse 4. So, when we see the viper of affliction fasten upon the godly, we are apt to censure them and say, These are greater sinners than others, and God hates them. But this rash censuring is for want of wisdom. Were not Israel in the house of bondage? Was not Jeremiah in the dungeon, and Paul a night and day in the deep? God's afflicting is so far from evidencing hatred that his not afflicting does. Quote, I will not punish your daughters when they commit whoredom. Unquote. Hosea 4, verse 14. Deus Maxim Erasitur cum non Erasitur Bernard God punishes most when he does not punish His hand is heaviest when it seems to be lightest The judge will not burn him in the hand whom he intends to execute 
third, If God's own Israel may be in the house of bondage, then afflictions do not of themselves demonstrate a man miserable. Indeed, sin unrepented of makes one miserable, but the cross does not. If God has a design in afflicting his children to make them happy, they are not miserable. But God's afflicting them is to make them happy, therefore they are not miserable. Quote, happy is the man whom God correcteth. Unquote. Job 5, verse 17. The world counts them happy who can keep out of affliction, but the scripture calls them happy who are afflicted. How are they happy? Because they are more holy. Hebrews 12, verse 10. Because they are more in God's favor. Proverbs 3, verse 12. The goldsmith loves his gold when in the furnace, because they have more of God's sweet presence. Psalm 91, verse 15. They cannot be unhappy who have God's powerful presence in supporting and His gracious presence in sanctifying their affliction. Because the more affliction they have, the more degrees of glory they shall have. The lower they have been in the iron furnace, the higher they shall sit upon the throne of glory. The heavier their crosses, the heavier shall be their crown. So then, if afflictions make a Christian happy, they cannot call him miserable. Fourth, see the merciful providence of God to his children. Though they may be in the house of bondage and smart by affliction, yet they shall not be hurt by affliction. What hurt does the fan to the corn? It only separates the chaff from it. Or the lance to the body? It only lets out the abscess. The house of bondage does that which sometimes ordinances will not. It humbles and reforms. Quote, if they be holden in cords of affliction, he openeth their ear to discipline, and commandeth that they return from iniquity. Unquote. Job 36, verses 8 and 10. Oh, what a merciful providence is it that, though God bruise his people, yet while he is bruising them, he is doing them good. It is as if one should throw a bag of money at another, which bruises him a little, but yet it enriches him. Affliction enriches the soul, and yields the sweet fruits of righteousness. Hebrews 12, verse 11. Fifth, if Israel be in the house of bondage, if the Lord deals so with his own children, and how severely will he deal with the wicked? If he be so severe with those he loves, how severe will he be with those he hates? Quote, if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? Unquote. Luke 23, verse 31. If they that pray and mourn for sin be so severely dealt with, what will become of those that swear and break the Sabbath and are unclean? If Israel be in the iron furnace, the wicked shall lie in the fiery furnace of hell. It should be the saddest news to wicked men to hear that the people of God are afflicted. Let them think how dreadful the case of sinners will be. Quote, judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel? Unquote. 1 Peter 4, verse 17. If God threshes wheat, he will burn the chaff. If the godly suffer castigation, the wicked shall suffer condemnation. If he mingle his people's cup with wormwood, he will mingle the wicked's cup with fire and brimstone. Use 2. If Israel be in the house of bondage. First, do not entertain too hard thoughts of affliction. Christians are apt to look upon the cross and the iron furnace as frightful things and do what they can to shun them. Nay, sometimes to avoid affliction they run themselves into sin. But do not think too hardly of affliction. Do not look upon it as though the multiplying glass of fear. The house of bondage is not hell. Consider that affliction comes from a wise God who prescribes whatever befalls us. Persecutions are like apothecaries. They give us the physic which God the physician prescribes. 
Affliction has its light side as well as its dark one. God can sweeten our afflictions and candy our wormwood. As our sufferings abound, so doth also our consolation. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 5 Argerius dated his letters from the pleasant garden of the Leonine prison. God sometimes so revives his children in trouble that they had rather bear their afflictions than want their comforts. Why then should Christians entertain such hard thoughts of afflictions? Do not look at its grim face, but at the message it brings, which is to enrich us with both grace and comfort. Second, if Israel be sometimes in the house of bondage, in an afflicted state, think beforehand of affliction. Say not as Job in chapter 29, verse 18, quote, I shall die in my nest, unquote. In the house of mirth, think of the house of bondage. You that are now Naomi may be Mara. Ruth 1, verse 20. How quickly may the scene turn, and the hyperbole of joy end in a catastrophe. All outward things are given to change. The forethoughts of affliction would make us sober and moderate in the use of lawful delight. It would cure a surfeit. Christ at a feast mentions his burial, a good antidote against a surfeit. The forethought of affliction would make us prepare for it. It would take us off the world. It would put us upon search of our evidences. We should see what oil we have in our lamps, what grace we can find, that we may be able to stand in the evil day. That soldier is imprudent who has his sword so wet when he is just going to fight. He who forecasts sufferings will have the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit ready, that he may not be surprised. Third, if afflictions come, let us labor to conduct ourselves wisely as Christians, that we may adorn our sufferings, that is, let us endure with patience. Quote, Take, my brethren, the prophets for an example of suffering, affliction, and patience. Unquote. James 5, verse 10. Satan labors to take advantage of us in affliction by making us either faint or murmur. He blows the coals of passion and discontent and then warms himself at the fire. Patience adorns sufferings. A Christian should say, as Jesus Christ did, quote, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done, unquote. It is a sign the affliction is sanctified when the heart is brought to a sweet, submissive frame. God will then remove the affliction. He will take us out of the iron furnace. We may consider these words, quote, which brought thee out of the house of bondage, unquote, either one, literally, or two, spiritually and mystically. In the letter, quote, I brought thee out of the house of bondage, unquote, that is, I delivered you out of the misery and servitude you sustained in Egypt, where you were in the iron furnace, spiritually and mystically, by which, quote, I brought thee out of the house of bondage, unquote, is a type of our deliverance by Christ from sin and hell. First, literally, I brought thee out of the house of bondage, unquote, out of great misery and slavery in the iron furnace. The thing I note here is that, though God brings his people sometimes into trouble, yet he will bring them out again. Israel was in the house of bondage, but at last was brought out. We shall endeavor to show, first, that God does deliver out of trouble. Second, in what manner. Third, at what seasons. Fourth, why he delivers. Fifth, how the deliverances of the godly and wicked out of the trouble differ. God does deliver his children out of troubles. Quote, Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted, and thou didst deliver them. Unquote. Psalm 22, verse 4. Quote, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion, unquote, namely, from Nero. Second Timothy 4, verse 17. Quote, thou layest affliction upon our loins, but thou broughtest us out into a wealthy place. Unquote. Psalm 66, verses 11 and 12. 
quote, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning, unquote. Psalm 30, verse 5. God brought Daniel out of the lion's den, Zion out of Babylon. In his due time he gives an issue out of trouble. Psalm 68, verse 20. The tree which is in the winter seems dead, revives in the spring. Post nubula foibus. The sun emerges after the storms. Affliction may leap on us as the viper did on Paul, but at last it shall be shaken off. It is called a cup of affliction. Isaiah 51, verse 17. The wicked drink a sea of wrath. The godly drink only a cup of affliction, and God will say shortly, quote, Let this cup pass away, unquote. God will give his people a jail delivery. In what manner does God deliver his people out of trouble? He does it like a God in wisdom. First, he does it sometimes suddenly, as the angel was caused to fly swiftly, Daniel 9, verse 21. So God sometimes makes a deliverance fly swiftly, and on a sudden turns the shadow of death into the light of the morning. As he gives us mercies above what we can think, Ephesians 3, verse 20, so sometimes before we can think of them. Quote, when the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream, unquote. It came suddenly upon us as a dream. Psalm 126, verse 1. Joseph could not have thought of such a sudden alteration to be the same day freed out of prison and made the chief ruler in the kingdom. Mercy sometimes does not stick long in the birth, but comes forth on a sudden. Second, God sometimes delivers his people strangely. Thus, the whale which swallowed up Jonah was the means of bringing him safe to land. He sometimes delivers his people in the very way which they think will destroy. In bringing Israel out of Egypt, he stirred up the heart of the Egyptians to hate them. Psalm 105, verse 25. And that was the means of their deliverance. He brought Paul to shore by a contrary wind and upon the broken pieces of the ship. Acts 27, verse 44. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, 
whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.